Adams, Adamly, Adamowski, Bueller, Burns, Burns, Burns. Time for School, Rock School, with your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. This is all he wrote. Ready? Yeah. Great Expectations. What in the world were they thinking? (laughs) Class is in. This is the Rock School Radio Show. Rock School Radio Network broadcasting from the campus southeastern Louisiana University. My wife is not with me this week. I got a different co-host. I'm going to do an interview with somebody. I got a contact from a publisher not too long ago, about a month and a half, and he said, I've got a book I would like you to read. And this happens now and again. And I say, okay, fine, send me a copy of the book and I'll look it over and I make a decision whether I want to read the book and do an interview with the, uh, with the author. This was really a good book, and I decided, hey, look, I'll do an interview with this guy, and I think you're going to enjoy it a great deal. Let me give you some facts. Released March 15th, 1976, two times platinum, peaked out at number 11 on the U.S. chart. It is Kiss's Destroyer. The book is called Shout It Out Loud, The Story of Kiss's Destroyer and the Making of an American Icon by James Campion. So for the next hour... Let me run bits and pieces of my interview with James Campion because you're not going to believe the story behind Kiss's Destroyer. Let's listen to it right now. Before I start picking specific things out of the book, let's talk just general about Kiss. Why this foursome in kabuki makeup? Why did this group rocket to such stardom this it states at the beginning of chapter three you uh, you quote one of kiss's members i think uh, i think the lead singer um didn't you hear were the clowns of rock and roll yeah. i mean yeah. why are they so popular it seems almost a joke well you have to let's go back to the 1970s i mean the, the answer to that is twofold uh number one the period very, very experimental period. Um, sadly found out this morning that uh, David Bowie passed, um, who is one of the godfathers of that creative environment, um, the glam rock period. Kiss was at the very butt end of that. They weren't going for that, as the great Bob Gruen, a uh, famous uh, photographer uh, of rock and punk, uh, told me when I interviewed him for the book. Kiss was trying to be like the New York Dolls, but they weren't pretty boys. You know, they, they, they didn't dress up like Bowie and give you this androgynous style. They were big, strong, hairy guys, and so they started to create these monster characters, these otherworldly characters. So this was part, and of course, Alice Cooper, which I dedicate to chapters of the book too, specifically because of their producer Bob Ezrin who worked on this record but the idea of creating characters, creating themes and then expressing those themes almost as librettos for a play uh, or a musical or an opera they would bring this out to, the, to whatever that again the milieu is for that particular time so without the 1970s you don't get Kiss number two, Kiss was those four guys were very unique 
and especially Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons, the two main guys who are still going to this day with the band. Um, and, and that's Paul Stanley's quote that you quoted there from the beginning of the uh, third chapter. They understood the humor in it. They understood the theatrics of it. And they also understood the fact that they couldn't be pigeonholed the way the New York Dolls were in the 70s, um, that sort of New York feel. They wanted to go beyond that. They wanted to be arena. So from the very beginning, they depicted themselves, and I call it in the book The Act, capital T, capital A, as this bigger, larger-than-life thing, even when they had no fan base, no money, their management was just, you know, scrimping and stealing and borrowing just to get them through. Their record company was, was just beginning. So it, it really is an amazing story about how they went beyond it. But none of this happens. None of it happens without the 1970s environment. And that, that was an experimental, amazing period where so many different disparate musical styles came out of. And uh, Kiss really, really absorbed into that and they catapulted from there. And I make the argument that without Destroyer, they don't get to be that iconic character. They were, they were kind of floundering around as this sort of rock oddity with the makeup, and, but they didn't really achieve the kind of status that they have uh, achieved in, in American pop culture until the making of this record. We're talking about the book, Shout It Out Loud, the story of Kiss's Destroyer and the making of an American icon with author James Campion. Now, Kiss, their first album, Hotter Than Hell, also their second album, was produced by Kenny Kerner and Richie Wise. Dressed to Kill, their third album, was produced by Casablanca president and and disco hero Neil Bogart. That was a mistake out of the box. However, this album, Destroyer, was produced by Bob Ezrin, which, again, this is an undertow in the book, you give the impression that that made all the difference. He sent them to boot camp. Who is Bob Ezrin, and what effect did he have on the album? Well, everything that Robert Allen Ezrin has done in his career has completely shifted the paradigm for whatever act uh, he worked with. He's famous for building Alice Cooper. I mean, Alice, who I interview for the book, and I have done several uh, pieces about over the years, one of the nicest people I ever want to meet and a guy who's very honest and extremely introspective about the character he created, excuse me, and the, um, and the, uh, the effect it had, not only on the culture there, but how he used burlesque and, and sort of a Charlie Chaplin idea of building a character and then making it of its time. That's, all, that's Bob Ezrin with Alice. Bob got in the studio with the Alice Cooper group, who had had two really bad psychedelic al- albums uh, working with Frank Zappa on his straight la- label in the late 60s, and got together with them and created songs. And those songs had images. There was never just a love song with Alice Cooper. It, it was, it was it, it, the deviance of love. It wasn't just commenting on social issues with Alice Cooper. It was the underbelly of America, the, the greed of America in the 70s, this idea of us not trusting our, our institutions, Nixon, um, the, the idea of cults that became very big in the 1970s. Bob, who's a Canadian, interestingly enough, tapped in to the Americana of it all, uh, McDonald's, blockbusters, all those things that kind of just blew up in the 1970s. Um, 
And so he created that with Alice, and Alice is very effusive about it in, in many, many different aspects. For five or six albums, he created this myth of Alice Cooper in a musical sense. And when Kiss was just beginning in 1973, Alice Cooper was the biggest rock man on the planet. He had the number one album in the U.K. and America at the same time, Billion Dollar Babies. Uh, their tour broke every record, Rolling Stones, Elvis Presley, all, all over the, the world. And so Alice was riding, I mean, excuse me, Bob was riding high, uh, 25, 26 years old. And when Kiss went to get him, uh, he, was, he brought that kind of idea to them, which they needed desperately. As you mentioned, uh, Kerner and Wise were producers of Badfinger, which was just a, you know, an offshoot of a Beatlesque sort of poppy thing. Uh, Bogart, who was stoned the entire time he was, he was producing it, uh, as you said, he was a, he was a, 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 a bubblegum. He built a bubblegum label in Karma uh, uh, Sutra Records and, uh, and Buddha, and then he worked with... Um, and then later on worked with Donna Summer and everything, so that was, uh, you know, ill-fated. And then, of course, pr- arguably maybe his greatest triumph is Pink Floyd's The Wall, which to this day is still one of the great conceptual pieces ever. And then he went on to produce many other bands in the years uh, after that. And he helped Kiss become a musical outfit that they were missing in those earlier records. But I think the most important thing he did with them is he understood that they were a th- theatrical band. They had not tapped into that yet. And he forced them to do it and face it. And Destroyer is their masterpiece because of it. Now, if you're a sound nerd, I mean, if you really like the concept of microphone placement and how things are recorded, chapters 14 and 19 are going to be for you. It explains exactly how the album is recorded, right down to almost the placement of items. I mean, you even go as far as stating exactly what microphone is used. And uh, I I found those very interesting. I have a little studio at my house and uh, have two of the microphones that were used to record the album. Can you isolate it? Can you sort of say this technique that Ezrin used was what made this album? Because, I mean, I have two of the first Kiss albums, and they don't sound like Destroyer. It's so much fuller. It's so much fatter. It's so much bigger in your speakers. What was it about the recording of this album that was so much more than the last or the first three? Well, you hit it right on the nose, Joe. Right on the nose. That's one of the things that fascinated me as a kid. I was 13 when I first heard it, and it stayed with me my whole life, and I debated many times in symposiums and arguments with other rock journalists or making lists that this belongs in the pantheon of the great rock 70s albums just because of that. Um, the reason why, there's several. Um, number one, they recorded it at the record plant, which was the, the state-of-the-art uh, record plant east on west 44th street which is gone now which made you know doing research for this very difficult because there were no records left um so the record plant was you know the like i said studio a uh where just hundreds of great great records 
were recorded. So that's number one. Number two, almost everybody that worked at the record plant, two of which uh, engineered this record, Jay Messina and Corky Stasiak, uh, the uh, engineer and assistant engineer, respectively, these two gentlemen had worked with just about everybody from uh, Alice Cooper, Errol Smith, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, uh, worked on the Woodstock soundtrack, the Bangladesh soundtrack, worked at movie soundtracks, wor- did every style of music you could probably, Ravi Shankar. So these guys knew what they were doing in a big way. Uh, they talk, like you said, the slightest details of how they recorded records back then. And it's interesting because since I re- uh, interviewed a lot of the guys, for the, uh, the, the old you know, guys that worked at the record plant and, and, and people that work today with music, uh, as you know, Joe, you know, Pro Tools and, and these type of things, you could record great stuff right in your living room. In those days, you had to go to a studio, and it was an art form. You had to have the mics, the, the, and the mics had to be in the exact same spot. The difference between having a microphone a foot from, a, from, from a, an amp uh, two feet just to the side of an amp, the way the amp is cranked or not cranked, where you put the amp in the room, the drum specifically because it's an acoustic instrument, uh, on destroyer, they put it on cement, they put it on a rug, half on cement, half on a rug, with baffles, without baffles, in a dead room to get a dead sound for one of the songs. They actually put the tom-toms in an elevator shaft and had uh, Peter Chris play there to give it that booming sound. So uh, Bob, again, as I said earlier, he was building a theatrical presentation. Only on Destroyer did they actually nail that. take a break for one minute we'll be back to talk more about shout it out loud the story of kisses destroyer and the making of an american icon by james campion right here on rock school return to the interview with James Campion, author of Shout It Out Loud, the story of Kiss's Destroyer and the making of an American icon. Now, there are a lot of myths inside of rock and roll. And one of the, the things that always comes up that people hear about that a lot of people think is a myth is that Detroit Rock City is about some kid who died going to a Kiss concert, and it must be a myth, but... What is exactly the true story behind Detroit Rock City? Is it about the death of some KISS fan? Yes or no? Uh, you're killing me. I'll <laughs> tell you, it was the thing that pained me the most, and I know that you know uh, this to be true because you've read the book, and I, I have a last final afterward in there where I spent about really six months of my life, <clears throat> and I'll never getting back looking for this alleged victim of a car accident. So you combine this great theme and story of the American car and Detroit, where the American car was born, and then you, you, you figure this whole thing is completely made up. It's a perfect opening to this, to this amazing record. 
But Paul tells a story, and he told it in several places, and he told it to me when I did an interview with him in 2006 for his solo album, Live to Win, that sometime in 1974, during the first Kiss tour, he had heard, heard, not read, because believe me, I looked at every newspaper and every police blotter all the way through the South. He said, somewhere in the South, he thinks in Charlotte, a kid lost his life at a kiss, going to a Kiss concert. He tells Ken Sharp, who I got to know and interviewed for the book um, in, in the official Kiss biography, uh, which is Behind the Mask from 1996, that a kid was hit by a car in the parking lot in Charlotte. Uh, the next night they played in Fayetteville, so I looked up in the Fayetteville newspapers and everything, called the police and checked the police blotters and everything, nothing. Um, he tells a different story in another account, and then he told me that he, a kid died on his way to the concert. Now, if you listen to Detroit Rock City, that's the story of the kid getting in the car, and he's listening to a song, and he's playing fast, and he's high, and he's drinking, and he's screaming, and he's, he's just youth, and he feels invincible. Then at the end of the song, of course, the, the, the brilliant car accident, the, the, the skidding of the car that Bob put in there, but and the opening uh, uh, radio sort of drama. So that lends to the myth, myth and the mystery. But I spent a long time looking, looking for this person. And I've heard other people, they're, they're one of the roadies and people around the band say, oh yeah, that happened. We definitely heard it, we were talking about it, we talked about it for weeks afterwards. How depressed they were that some young kid was going to see Kiss lost their lives, lost his life or her life. And so I have in my book, in my afterward, about seven or eight names of people around KISS shows from that tour that po in the South that possibly could have uh, lost their life, but there's no actual empirical evidence. There's no newspaper, there's no TV report, radio. I went crazy looking. I had, I had like I said, I had police people, had people in the archives department in Raleigh, the, um, the uh, capital of North Carolina, helping me out, and we just could not find it. So it's still out there, and I've had two or three Detroit mag uh, newspapers and magazines put out a call to fans if you know anything about it. And the one thing that kept popping up, specifically on Facebook and social media, is that Fayetteville, North Carolina, which was the next stop in both the 74 and 75 tours, that that was the, that, that, that was the town that sometime in the 90s or, or the early aughts, that people were, were talking about it or sending out messages. The kid was from here. We knew that kid. The, and there was actually a record. I've heard that there was a record store, which is not there anymore in Fayetteville, that had an RIP in the behind, behind the, the counter. And again, you know, it's gone. It's like all these things with this album. The, the studios are gone. <laughs> the records are gone. This, this record store is gone. It, it, it's the weirdest thing. So there's no way I can answer that question. I tried, and you'll read the names in there, and you, you know, as a detective, maybe if people read the book, they'll go, okay, I think it might be. If anybody out there can answer that question, I mean, empirically, I mean, with real evidence, uh, please, you know, contact me or contact you, uh, because it still eludes me to this day. <laughs> Off of that, uh, a buddy of mine here on campus, uh, Randy is his name, and he might be the largest KISS fan I have ever met in my life. He has this question off of that. There's a radio newscast at the beginning of Detroit Rock City. 
He's heard that it's Gene's voice on the radio, and he's heard that it's Bob Ezrin's voice on the radio. Do you know? It's Bob. It's Bob Ezrin. Okay. All right, there. Many people are of the opinion Gene Simmons was always the driving voice behind KISS, and and he is, you know, even today. Tell me who Bill Acoin is. Bill Acoin was their first manager. He discovered them, no question about it. They were they were playing these little showcases in New York in these dives, these horrible places. And uh, Bill came out. They would, would send these notes out uh, to all these record type people. And Bill, the interesting thing about Bill is when he showed up to saw, when he showed up to see Kiss, he really wasn't even looking really to manage a band. He was just looking for different things to make money that he thought would fit into something he can use. He had a great background in advertising. He had his own uh, video and television production company called Direction Plus, which worked in the same building on Madison Avenue, uh, Madison Avenue in New York with the um, Howard Marks Agency, which was an advertising and marketing agency. They had their own graphic people there. They had their own, like I said, uh, videographers there and, all, and everything else. So Bill already had that under his belt. So when he saw Kiss, obviously, he saw Dollar Sign. But he saw that they were very raw. They, didn't, they were just up there with the makeup and the leather outfits. And although they had the great visuals going and the music was okay, he really saw it as something that he can build. In this. So in Gene Simmons is quoted in the book as saying 90% of what Kiss became came out of Bill's head. He immediately got Sean Delaney, his partner, and at that time his lover, to work with them. Sean had a background in Broadway and theatrics. And he got them on stage, dyed all their hair blue-black, sent them down to the, to the East Village to get uh, S&M equipment and, and clothes and leather and, and dog collars and all these things to create this, this image. They, they work with them on the stage. They use the film and the video cameras to, sh- to, to videotape their shows. So they, Gene had to be the demon and Paul had to be the lover and Ace had to, you know, wobbling around and his Ace Space Ace type thing and Peter is pounding in the back as the cat man and, and all of this stuff. Work with these guys for hours and hours and weeks and weeks transforming them into Kiss. And um, I'm not saying those, the guys in Kiss didn't work their butts off. They did and played to derision at the beginning and had to build an audience one gig after it, just driving all across the country in, in pickup trucks and whatever they could do. But Bill Coyne was really the mad genius behind them. He would be like their Brian Epstein, who discovered the Beatles in the cavern and kind of told them to cut their hair a certain way and stand a certain way. And Gene Simmons says, you know, uh, I understood exactly what Bill was doing with us because when I was a kid and I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, they didn't just look like guys playing instruments. They looked like a band, and that's what I wanted. I wanted us to look like if we walked in a room and I'm standing over there and there's a thousand people in the room and Ace is on the other side, obviously if their faces are painted, you'd say they're together. But he wanted that sort of gang mentality. And Bill Coyne saw that right away to his credit, and he got them a record deal, as he promised them, within a couple of months. And uh, Neil Borgard, as we mentioned earlier in the discussion, uh, was just starting Casablanca Records, and he decided he wanted something visual. He loved the face painting. He loved the idea of it. So all these people really got behind Kiss, and because of the fact that they were, uh, they took any barrier and completely ignored it, that that was a really a perfect triumvirate. The band, uh, Bill, and then, of course, uh, Neil with Casablanca Records to make Kiss, at least get Kiss to Bob Ezrin. It got them survived through those early years to get them to Bob, and I think Bob hit it out of the park with this show.
Time to take another break. We'll be back to talk more with James Campion. His book, Shout It Out Loud, the story of Kiss's Destroyer and the making of an American icon. You should pick it up. Back in a minute on Rock School. Answer me this. Who is Kim Fowley? How does he figure into the album? If you look at the album, if you have it, you'll find the name Fowley following King of the Nighttime World and Do You Love Me? Who is Kim Fowley? <laughs> uh, Kim Fowley was, um, and sadly he passed last year, and he gave one of his last long-form interviews specifically about this record. Two people had passed since I finished the book, Dick Wagner, who plays in the background on the record. We could discuss Dick later as well. Um, they both passed, so both of them gave their last interviews about Destroyer and what they did. But Kim Fowley, you could spend, no kidding, you could spend a week, a week reading about what Kim Fowley did in the music business from the late 1950s all the way up until he passed away. Here's a man who seems to be in everything. I, I, I've read, the last two books I've read about music Kim Fowley was in there, and when I interviewed him, which went on for about two hours at about two in the morning one time when I was working on the book, and all the other stuff I've read about Kim, he's in them. I just read a book about Van Halen. He helped Van Halen you know, get a studio. I read a book about the, the, the um, eclectic artist from Austin, Texas, Daniel Johnston recently, and here's Kim Fowley helping Daniel Johnston. He's everywhere. He worked with everyone. He got Jimi Hendrix an apartment. He hung out with the Mamas and Papas. He started The Runaways. He got two songs on a Kiss album. He introduced Alice Cooper to the GTOs, who introduced them to Frank Zappa that got them on a label. He worked with Warren Zevon when Warren Zevon was nobody. He, he, he worked on the, on the, uh, the soundtrack to, to, um, to uh, American Graffiti. The guy is amazing. And he knew Bob Ezra from back in the day. And Bob told me, if I wanted to know what was going on in L.A., I talked to Kim Fowley. Everybody talked to Kim Fowley. And here's Kim, has this band called The Hollywood Stars, and uh, they've got a song called King of the Nighttime World. And the band is a mess. Yeah, they're all on drugs, they're fighting with each other, ego problems, and Kim's a nut too. So let's face it, he probably was throwing some, uh, some wrenches in this. And he played the, the stuff for Bob. And because Bob would do him favors, he did favors for Bob. And Bob says, yeah, I don't like this band, but I like that King of the Nighttime World. So if you ever, band ever breaks up and you want to do something with it, give me a call. It's so sad, living Okay, we have to talk about it. 
Kiss is a rock band. Some people say it's a hard pop band, but the song that broke this album was Beth. It was the it was the ballad. Beth is such a departure of what people think about Kiss, and there is this name, Stan Penridge, on this. I I, I had no idea who Stan Penridge is, so I I looked him up. And then turned, I went immediately to, you know, the internet, looked him up, and then turned two pages, and then you explained who he was in the book. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> who is Stan Penridge? He was in a band with Peter Chris, who was then Peter Chris Cola. Um, in 1971, Peter Chris, of course, the drummer for uh, Kiss, uh, Peter was older than everybody else in Kiss. He was already in his late 20s when they broke. Um, and he had been in a lot of bands, uh, and, and Peter was inspired by, um, by people like Gene Krupa, and he loved big band music and doo-wop, so he was of a different generation a little bit, just, and which gave them a little bit of a soulful sound, which I, I like, that separated them from more of the plotting heavy metal rock music from the period. Um, and Peter was in a band called um, Chelsea with Stan Penridge, who was a guitar player, uh, one of the guitar players, and, um, and then later on a band called Lips, interestingly enough, and then on to Kiss. But uh, so Stan and, and Peter wrote a song called Beck in, in Peter's apartment, which if you go on YouTube is a great little ditty, a great little demo, warbly and crackling. It sounds like three in the morning after about 100 cigarettes. You know, they're, they're probably very high or, or you know, hungover. It's just, it just got that great sound of a couple of guys just putting down a little, little three-chord ditty. And uh, they basically did it to make fun of the, another guitar player in the band, his, uh, his girlfriend, who used to call all the time while they were trying to rehearse. And it, it, Stan says in, in, in my book that if you listen to it, it's, it, if you try to think about what the other person's saying on the other side, it sounds like a person trying to explain, hey, I, I need to get back to record. You'll be fine, okay? I, like his girlfriend nagging him. And even the second verse of the original Beck is just, you know, really a mock song. They're just busting his chops, you know? And because Bob Ezrin is a genius, and because he had thrown out to the guys in Kiss, I challenged them. I want different stuff. I want everything you've got. Well, Peter doesn't really write songs. I don't care. Give me anything you've got. Well, he only has this, I don't care. So here's Gene Simmons and Peter Chris in the back seat of a limo leaving some uh, show in Flint, Michigan or something, uh, during the period when they're doing the boot camp we talked about. And Peter says, I, I, let me sing you this song. I got this melody. And he starts singing this, Beck, I hear you call it. And Gene's like, I like this, but why is it Beck? Was it about Jeff Beck? No, the girl's name was Becky. Okay, so they bring it to Bob, and Bob immediately hears, because this is the genius of Bob Ezra, he immediately hears everything. He hears the strings, the piano. He hears a key change. He hears it as this, this soaring ballad of, of heartbreak and, and, and pathos. And Peter's like, okay. So Bob takes it back over a weekend and, and orchestrates this entire thing. If I hear you calling, but I can't come home right now. Me and the boys are playing, and we just can't. Okay, I'm going to finish up with three quick questions here. You give me just short answers on this. I'll give you two real quick here. What's your favorite song on Destroyer? What's the best song on Destroyer? Uh, Destro- De- Detroit Rock said 
Detroit Rock City is the best song that Kiss ever did, ever recorded. It's the best sounding song. It's the best driving song perhaps ever written and recorded. I love that middle part. love the opening, uh, the driving, ostinato. There's everything about that, that song is, is excellent. The answer to both those questions is Detroit Rock City. I will tell you that when I'm about three-quarters of the way through the book, maybe a little less, a very poor uh, picture of Ace Freely starts to be painted to the point where, you know, exit Ace Freely, enter Dick Wagner. If you could, A, tell us who Dick Wagner is, uh, and then second, what was going on with Ace Freely? Uh, there's, a, there's an album or the, a song on the album called Sweet Pain where there's supposed to be a lead guitar part by Ace Freely. It's not played by Ace Freely. It's played by Dick Wagner. And again, he's not there because of a, a, a pretty poor picture painted all around him. Tell us the story behind that. Well, I do want to say that Bob Ezrin, one of the great things that he was, obviously, I'm talking effusively about Bob, but he was my Wizard of Oz. I mean, it took me about 16 months to finally get Bob to sit down and talk, and then we spent hours talking about this record. He was extremely honest and forthcoming about that. There's many stories about how him and Ace didn't get along. He ended up producing another record for Kiss in 1981 in which Ace didn't show up at all. He recorded all his stuff from his home studio. So there is, it's out there that Ace did not respond well to Bob's tough love or his get this done, get it done now, get it done right idea. Ace would just come in usually in Kiss albums. They'd play him the, you know, the, the, the eight bars that he needed to lead, and he would lead. Um, and he was brilliant. He was arguably the best musician in the band. Um, but Ace was also deeply into uh, uh, substance abuse at the time. He was introduced to cocaine on this record. Bob, uh, at the time, admitted that he had the, the three C's, as Paul Stanley calls it, cognac, cigars, and cocaine. And they were ubiquitous during the making of this record. So here's Ace. He's already got an alcohol problem and other issues. But Bob says it's none of that. Ace's older brother was a classical guitar player, and Ace always felt a little intimidated by that. Now here he comes, and he's playing, and the producer is, a, is classically trained and is not going to fall for any shenanigans of showing up and just winging it. He had everything planned out. The famous solo, which Ace freely admits in his memoir, is the greatest thing he probably ever played on a Kiss record, was written by Bob on the piano and hummed to both he and Paul uh, and said, this is we're going to do that, that middle, what I call the aria part of the song, where, where, where it just kind of takes off and you could tell this is not just a rock song. This is a song about a kid who's going to lose his life. And so Bob had that in there. And so Ace sort of wilted under that. And Bob says it really wasn't the drugs. It wasn't his flippant attitude. There's a myth that Gene says in his, his memoir, and I've heard this many times before. Oh, uh, Ace couldn't be bothered. He's playing cards. That's not true. According to Bob and other witnesses at the time, Ace just could not handle being pressured, and he even admits it. And he just got scared. He just, just said, I, I can't do this, and just stopped showing up. And Bob at the time was like, you know, we've got three weeks to get this record down. And so he would call Dick Wagner, who was at the time was living in a, an apartment classic, classic rock and roll life, um, had his own suite at the plaza, grabbed his SG, his Gibson SG and his, his Les Paul, got in a cab and went to the record plant on 44th. Now, Dick Wagner is probably, arguably, I would say, the equivalent to what Eric Clapton was, not as big, obviously, in England. He was considered the guitar player's guitar player. Everybody wanted Dick Wagner in the band. Everybody wanted to work with Dick Wagner. He was an amazing musician back in the early 70s when, like I said, Detroit was the hotbed of rock music. Uh, Alice Cooper says 
at the beginning of uh, Dick's memoir, he's the guitar player we all wanted to steal, and I knew I wanted to steal him, and he did eventually. And Dick was not just a great guitar player, he was a songwriter. He wrote Only Women Bleed. He wrote You, you and Me. Remember that song, You and Me, uh, We're No Superstar? Big hit in the 70s with Alice Cooper. He was the musical director for Welcome to My Nightmare. So Bob appreciated that because Bob's a great musician and so is Dick. And Bob used him as executive producer on the second Aerosmith record as he filled in for both Joe Perry and Kramer uh, on that record without any credit. He played on several Alice Cooper records when those guys were too drunk to make it, uh, guitar, and he came in and played on four tracks on Destroyer. And for the first time, and the last time, sadly, because it was the last time Dick would, would give an interview like this before he passed in 2014, that he played on this record in the background. And I'll let the readers find out which songs. But yeah, he was called in to sort of pinch hit. And to Dick's credit, he came in, he got paid, he got his, his union to pay, and he got whatever else on top of it, and went along his business. I call him the invisible virtuoso. It was a moniker that he embraced later in life, and I'm very happy to, to say that. These background stories of people who came in. But Dick came in and he pinch hit for, for Ace and did a brilliant job. And to Ace's credit over the years, he always said, you know, I was really angry at that when it first came out and but I, I i understood where bob was going and if you listen to dick's style it's very much in that ezrin style of of thematic and cinematic so he was the perfect anecdote to what really could have been a disaster for them during this recording of that record well james it was a hell of a book i really enjoyed it once again james campion it's spelled like champion drop the h the book is called Shout It Out Loud, the story of Kiss's destroyer and the making of an American icon. I urge you to go buy it. Can it be uh, Can it be downloaded, Kindle? Yeah, it's available in all formats, as they say, and Super. wherever books are sold. Wherever books are sold. James, thank you for your time. Professor, it has been an honor, sir.